Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 7. The kettle's not quite boiling. Down at the aerodrome, I watch the Irks working desperately to get a damaged Spitfire repaired before the next raid comes in. There's no doubt about it. Some of our aircraft are in a pretty shocking condition, but these men are doing damned well. They're singing. This Easter hymn is punctuated by forceful remarks from grimy lips, such as lend us an hand and pass that effing spanner. "'Tis Holy Thursday, let us snooker, all the blessed spits at Luca. Fill the sky with every stooker, hallelujah. Hail Good Friday, Halfoz turn, watch the blasted swordfish burn, won't the British ever learn, hallelujah. Easter Saturday, that's fine, make to Cully toe the line, here's a rocket, there are mine, hallelujah. Christ the Lord is risen today, let's bomb the harbour, bomb the bay, bomb the blasted place all day, hallelujah. Easter Monday, let them rip, gosh, we'll give those boys the pip, tear them off a saffy strip, hallelujah. I hurry back to my own machine because I don't want to be too far away when the takeoff order comes. Just two Spitfires left in a flyable condition on the whole of this vast aerodrome. I'm taking one and now, standing by the huge three-bladed propeller of my own hearse, I watch Pancho adjusting his kit into the cockpit of the other. Turning round and leaning on one of the thick solid cannons thrusting forward from the wing of my plane, I stare down at the graceful fuselage to my own perspex coffin. My kit's already inside it. At the end of the fuselage is the delicate tailplane, while beyond that, high up on the sandbags, is the airman whom I have posted to watch for the signal. He looks like a happy, carefree child dangling his legs. I wonder if he knows there are only seven serviceable fighters left on the whole island. What do 109s mean to him? During last year's sweeps, when over 200 Spitfires forged out over the vast area of northern France, when we measured our flying times in hours, tucked in amongst friends and returned to lavishly equipped bases, we only saw a few 109s nibbling on the edge of our formations, and I was afraid. But here... Of course, a few people were shot down during the sweeps, but I never thought it could happen to me. But here, with hundreds of 109s concentrated over our tiny island, and having been shot down once already, I've lost all my illusions. We are all cut off. There are no replacement aircraft, as we had during the sweeps. Cut off. There's no news from home. Not a cable. Not a letter. Not the remotest message from Diana. Looking at these two remaining aircraft, I feel that everyone has forgotten us. We now know why the Germans have stepped up the intensity of their bombing, why more and more 109s appear in our sky with every new raid. Our reconnaissance Spitfire has brought back new pictures of the enemy airfields in Sicily. Besides the fleets of bombers and fighters, the photographs reveal crates containing gliders being unloaded from long goods trains. We are going to be invaded. The possibility of seeing the invasion is remote. 
Everything in the future is remote except the immediate ordeal of flying. I hope Peter can make it. I rang him up from Naxar after the raid this morning. It's a highly unorthodox request to get him to lead our formation, and it may not be permitted. I can get our tiny formation into the bombers, but I want to see at what point an old hand breaks away from them to avoid the 109s. As I run my hands along the hard surface of this gull wing, I have never been so aware of the permanence of metal and their yielding quality of flesh and bone. If this machine is to be broken within the hour, and my body broke with it, the machine will remain recognisably a thing of metal. People will know that it was once an aeroplane, but this body of mine may be burnt and charred or jellied beyond recognition. If I must be killed today, I hope I fall into the sea. The ocean is more discreet. People won't stare at my remains. I won't make them want to vomit or crack clever jokes over what's left of me. The airman is standing up, looking towards G-Shelter. Has he seen something? Is it a scramble, I call to him? As he shakes his head and makes an impatient negative gesture with his hand stretched down by his side, I hear the noise of a motorbike coming nearer. As I wander round the front of the pen to see who it is, my heart slows its beat of unnecessary alarm. Drawing sedately towards me is a seated figure in khaki. I don't know him. He must be another one of the old hands. Hello, old boy. Got a message from Woody for you. He says it's OK about Peter. He'll fly over from Tikale and rendezvous with you in the circuit here. That'll make a complete section of four, won't it? No, I reply. I've only got two planes at the moment. Tell Woody that Chief and his boys are working on a third. They expect to have it ready within an hour. The newly arrived motorcyclist seems to have plenty of time for a chat. He tells me that there's nothing on the board yet, so I introduce myself. He tells me that he's just come out of hospital at Umtafa. What happened to you then? I asked, provoking him with a smile. Oh, the 109's got me about six weeks ago. Did you bail out or did you come down with the plane? Bailed out near Filfla, but the chute's dreamed. Your chute didn't open, you got away with it? I asked, with a picture in my mind of him falling headlong with his parachute flapping and smacking uselessly in the air behind him, then of his heavy body striking the foot of a rocky wall with a sickly crunch. Where's Filfla? I ask. Haven't you seen it? He replies in astonishment. When I explain that I haven't been on the island very long, he nods his head in understanding. Filfla, he tells me, is a small island just out to sea, off the southwest coast, opposite Dingley. It's really nothing else but a tall lump of rock, and the artillery often use it for a practice shoot. Then you fell into the water, but the water's damned hard. You're telling me, he replies, I broke my neck. Broke your neck? I'm astonished. I always thought if someone had their neck broken, they were automatically dead, on the principle of being hanged. I stare at him, but I hope my bewilderment doesn't reveal too much of my ignorance. I suppose the air-sea rescue boats brought you ashore. No, I swam, about a mile and a half. I continued to stare. What are you doing now, I ask. I'm dog's body. I do odd jobs, until I get a place in a transit plane. Then back to a hospital in UK. Well, I must be getting along. I watch him as he looks down for the gears. He has only slight difficulty in doing so, despite his stiff neck. He revs the engine gently, lets in the clutch and drives slowly away in a wide circle. I watch him as he motors sedately towards G-Shelter. He travels carefully, his seated and retreating back view doesn't bounce or sway and he steers well clear of the odd lumps of broken rock. So, his parachute didn't open. I know that the building on the island for packing the parachutes has been blown to pieces. Perhaps makeshift conditions have affected the chutes. Was the CO's chute on our first flight really ripped by enemy bullets or was it already faulty before he put it on? Quickly, I have my chute out for inspection. But there's no time now. The motorcyclist is back. Enemy aircraft are gathering over Sicily, he tells me. Stand by for immediate takeoff. Right. Sir, says Chiefy, approaching me with my other pilots. You can have the third Spitfire now. Well done, Chiefy. Damn good. I'll take it myself. Scotty, you'll join us. Get your kit into this plane. Your call sign is Pinto Yellow 3. Oh, for God's sake, there go the lights. Scramble! 
This line of breast formation is delightful. I look out sideways at Peter's Spitfire, which joined us before we'd got halfway round the circuit, with Scotty beyond him and Pancho away in the distance. Four Spitfires are leaning up the sky at full throttle. We came out of the hay sheet, which extends below us like rusty white smoke as far as the horizon, at 15,000 feet, but we are climbing steadily higher and higher into the cerulean blue bowl. I can't see Peter's face because the brilliant sun is glinting on. What's happening? His Spitfire suddenly staggers. It drops below, leaving black smoke hanging behind it. Hello, Dennis. Peter here. Got to leave you. Engine's cut. Sorry. OK, Peter. Good luck. Thanks for coming. Behind and below us, the water grades imperceptibly into the haze. An awful lot of water, with Peter's Spitfire already far below us, a tiny silhouette and gliding away towards the north. He'll need good luck to reach the island, lost and invisible in this Mediterranean chasm. 18,500 feet. Let's see how we cope with our very first crossover turn. Crossing over now, rather a muddle perhaps, but for beginners... Hello, Pinto leader. There are 40 little jobs over St. Paul's Bay. Angels 20 heading south. There's another 30 over Zonko at Angels 15 headed southwest. The kettle isn't boiling yet. Hang around a bit, chaps. 70 109s prowling for the three of us. There'll be a lot more soon. What does Woody mean by the kettle's not quite boiling? I can guess. No bombers yet. Come in now, Pintos, and come in fast. Grand Harbour. As I ease my Spitfire into a steeper and steeper dive, I notice that by sheer chance Scotty is in the centre of our formation. Splendid opportunity of checking his leadership. Hello, Scotty. Dennis here. You're the boss. It's your baby from here on. We are your worshipful attendants. OK, Dennis. Steeper, even steeper, almost vertically into the haze. My Spitfire's bucking and jerking with the speed of our power dive. Control's difficult to move. Here comes the island, looming towards us, as Scotty eases us gently out of our plunge. Rather low, I think, the cliffs, Medina, Takali flash below us. Lower still across the valley, Naxar, the hillside, the wall, B-flight, pilots watching, abruptly with over the harbour. Low over the rooftops, bombs bursting up towards us, shells bursting among us, while from high above us, stukas are plunging straight down, pulling out of their dive at our level. On my own now, pulling my Spitfire up on its tail, a head-on stuka is charging towards me, the W structure of its wings perfectly distinct, larger and larger, bombs falling away from its belly, disappearing under my aircraft's nose. I fire into its gigantic shape. Its enfolding shadow broods for an instant over my head. This is mad, crazy, but wonderful. Just below me, as I swerve about, I have an impression of angled white houses with shadowed streets like deep ravines, occasional glimpses of blue water, all of it buried beyond the undergrowth of black bomb bursts that reach up towards me like a forest of trees. I'm knocked sideways, riding these explosions like a bronco. Ha! Ha! A rolling black cloud leaps alongside me, peering in at me with its grotesque dragon face. Already gone. Shells flash yellow, black, grey. What do I care? This is but the fantastic background to my concentration on the belly of another Stuka, already huge, much closer, winged, round, pregnant, with twin bombs hanging there, head-on detailed beyond the red circle of my gun sight. Firing steadily, I pull my nose carefully upwards so that the enemy machine disappears behind my engine cowlings, so that it must pass through my close grill of bullets and cannon shells. Ball, armour-piercing, incendiary, everything I've got. A monstrous scarlet shape, a mass of flames flashes overhead. Another plunging towards me, I pull my aircraft up until it too disappears behind my Spitfire's nose. Firing at this invisible thing that I know is there, rushing at me. Its underside reappears in front of my nose. Huge wheels, round matte rubber. I duck my head. It's gone. Couldn't have missed him. Must have riddled him. Guns, what's the matter with my guns? I didn't stop firing, but my guns did. With quiet deliberation, I look down into my dark cockpit. I place my thumb on the firing button on the top of my control column. I press it for cannons and machine guns together. There's an escape of compressed air. Nothing else. 
I select for each armament separately, but no guns fire. Temperature okay, air pressure okay, but why, why, why? 109s, 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 watch out, Spitfires, comes the deadly warning. The thought strikes me as a fiercely moving hand would strike a drunkard. With the sharp angled shapes flashing about me, I'm cold sober now, defenceless with no guns, terrified. I plunge downwards towards the cover of the houses, wrench my Spitfire along a wide street, swerving right along the main road in the direction of the aerodrome. All aircraft cover, laggard leader about to pancake. That's the call sign of the hurricanes. I stare upwards and there, above the familiar hillside that leaps towards me, I can see two hurricanes circling. Good idea. Hello, Woody, I call. Pinto leader, going in also. OK, Pinto leader. I've closed the throttle and my Spitfire, slowing rapidly, joins the circuit. Craning my head round and searching and searching the sky for pursuing 109s, I feel for the lever and lower the wheels. Damn it, I've overshot the main runway where the tiny hurricane is landing. Never mind, the next runway will do. I turn gently towards it. I'm perfectly positioned for their landing. Slower and slower in a medium turn, I lower the flaps. 109's in the circuit, a shrill yell. I twist round in my seat. My God, four planes arching upon me. I'm hypnotised by the white blink, the sudden flow of traces. Missed me by God. The first 109 rushes upwards. I glimpse ahead. I can't possibly go round again with wheels and flaps down. As slow as this, I'd be shot to bits. Helpless, I stare back at the second 109, rapidly closing. If I turn, I'll spin. I'm dropping fast, runway some distance ahead. I stare at the 109, larger and more awful. My aircraft is sluggish, dropping fiercely, full throttle, for something else is wrong. Oblivious of curling traces, I'm sitting with the nose of my Spitfire pointing skywards. However, did I get into such an attitude? Dropping tail first towards a wide square reservoir, a sheet of water rushing up to meet me. A sudden sweaty black realisation that I'm going to crash. Rasp of tearing, buckling metal, compressed violently into the seat, compressed further and further. I can feel my bones bending. Now I'm riding upwards, riding along on the very top of all the wreckage, slithering diagonally with frightful noise across the perimeter track, onto the very brink of the runway. Tarmac, grass, bits of rock, all blurred. But I notice with dispassionate interest that the oleo legs and wheels have come straight up through the smooth top surface of the wings. Dust and silence. Sitting here, I realise with awful horror what I've done. I don't think any bullet struck me. I have crashed a Spitfire through sheer bloody carelessness. Automatically, I turn off the fuel taps and ignition switches. I don't care about the 109s now. Releasing my straps, I stand up in the cockpit, my yellow May West conspicuous against the blue-grey wreckage. I'm on the brink of tears. Where can I hide myself? There's a broken hangar with dark shadows. No good, there's an airman there. There's also a car speeding towards me. No escape. I'm caught. The airman driver and another helper are urging me to get in. We're moving off now, faster and faster, the driver crouching low, his head turned flat against the steering wheel, peering furtively at the sky. Through my blur of tears, I'm aware of 109 streaking across the aerodrome, making another attack. I'm too ashamed to care. The airmen jolt the car to a halt in the concrete bay behind G Shelter. They have risked their lives to bring me in, so I thank them, although I'm not worth saving. I walk round and face the small black entrance to G Shelter Tunnel. I'll have to go down there. I'll have to face all the other pilots. This is worse than going up into action, but reluctant though I am, I've got to go through with it. Someone's climbing up. I can hear the sound of heavy boots on the steps. A figure emerges into the sunlight. It is Hugh. What's happened to the dreaded Dennis? He proclaims heartily. Were you shot down again? No, I answer bitterly. I've no excuse. It was sheer bloody carelessness, totally unnecessary. This is appalling. We're desperately short of aircraft. All the afternoon I've been nagging Chiefy to get that machine serviceable. The airmen work magnificently. Now I've broken the thing. How can I face anyone? Whatever will they say to me? D.
descending into G shelter, I realise that my Mae West proclaims the fact that I've been flying. All the pilots sitting on the benches staring at me must already know what I've done. I make my way towards the door marked so ominously strictly private, authorised persons only. I hesitate, but finally knock and make my way inside. Senior officers, gold braid. Facing the lifted eyebrows of the group captain, I just can't stop the tears rolling down my cheeks. May I have a personal interview with the AOC, sir? I ask. I want to make a personal apology. For heaven's sake, man, whatever for? I've broken a spitfire, sir. It was sheer carelessness. Don't worry about it. We were watching. Not everyone comes into land with 109s on their tail. Come along to the mess and have a drink. This is worse than I dreamed of. They're being so kind to me. I sit down on one of the benches and lean forward with my head between my hands. Whatever can I do? However can I get 100% efficiency out of all my pilots in the face of what I've done? Here's Chiefy too, just standing and staring. Scotty and Pancho have arrived. Thank God they're safe. They're telling me of the Stukas they saw plunge into the sea during our attack. Several went in, apparently. One of them burning fiercely, probably mine. But here comes the inevitable question. We saw the broken Spitfire on the edge of the runway. Whatever happened to you? That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's patreon, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash we have ways more of one man's window coming soon I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.